You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in the hospital's medical imaging department. This is the second of a two-part series into clinical supervision for allied health, and in part one we discuss the relatively new Victorian clinical supervision framework with Marcus Gardner, who led the production of this framework. Today I'm speaking with Danny Tassoni and Michaela Camido, who are both dietitians at the Royal Children's Hospital. Danny is an allied health clinical educator as well. And together they have gone through the process of implementing a clinical supervision program in the dietetic department of RCH and have come today to share their experience. Thanks for joining us, Danny and Michaela. Having us, Steve. So in part one of Clinical Supervision Podcast, Marcus gave us some insights into the differences between mentoring and supervision. Can you just give us a refresher on this, Danny? There are kind of nuanced differences between mentoring and supervision. Mentoring is typically a voluntary um, partnership, which people enter into and focuses more on career progression and personal development, Mm -hmm. whereas clinical supervision tends to be a more structured practice with typically more governance um, and guidelines around it within an organisation or within a department, which lends to more expectation and accountability. Clinical supervision itself focuses more on improving clinical practice through uh, reflective practice, helping pull out that kind of clinical reasoning that helps you get to the answers that you need or the answers that you want in terms of patient care. It provides professional guidance and support, not just on career progression, but developing yourself as a professional. Yeah. And a key point of difference is the professional wellbeing aspect um, and creating a psychologically safe environment that allows the supervisee to feel comfortable to work on all these aspects of um, their practice. If we look at it in a specific sense then, how does this look in your own department in dietetics? Yeah, it took me, um, it was a good reflective practice exercise, this podcast, because I had to think back to when we did do mentoring and how it looked different from what we're doing now with clinical supervision. And there are a few iterations of it, but to keep it simple, we had professional mentoring. So everyone in the department was allocated a mentor. The interpretation of that within the dietetics department was that it was more of a professional development relationship helping with career progression. We also had a what we called clinical mentoring for the grade two dietitians in the department. Just happened at the time we had a lot of new starters and the structure of our department was very heavy with grade twos rather than senior grade threes or grade fours. Yeah. So creating those partnerships was a bit challenging logistically and that clinical mentoring would be that the grade twos and grade ones in the department would meet every fortnight and do kind of a case-based presentation uh, or work with through a tricky case together. So in reflection, now knowing more about the practice clinical supervision that kind of fits more with the model of peer or group supervision, but but is not quite peer or group supervision. In terms of how the professional mentoring worked between mentors and mentees, it was really mentee driven. And in keeping with what mentoring is, it it was a sense or a notion that it was more of a voluntary thing, although it was very much encouraged um, and notionally expected that people would engage. Yeah. Engagement was quite good from those who were new to the RCH or new to paediatrics, but it seemed to taper off for those who were more experienced, for those who were in mentoring partnerships outside of the department or outside of the children's hospital. So it was, it was a bit hit and miss who was engaging and how often they were engaging in it. 
those who were engaging in it, it was more of an ad hoc catch up or relationship as there were no guidelines or expectations about what was included in that mentoring practice and how often it should occur um, and, you know, what outcomes you were working towards as part of that mentoring partnership. What was the general feel of the department in terms of the way that the mentoring program was running anyway? Did they feel that it was a program, like a well-established program that was running fairly well, like a well-oiled machine, or did they kind of think, yeah, this is okay and we're not really seeing much benefit from it though? I think it was quite mixed. As I said, we kind of had an influx of of new um, staff at the time. You know, in keeping with the the principles of adult learning, we all have previous experience and I myself had come from an adult tertiary uh, acute hospital, which had a really structured clinical supervision program. So I was really keen to get my partnership off the ground because I saw the value in it to my clinical practice and my development. But others who hadn't experienced it before didn't necessarily know how to do it or what the value was in it, not just for themselves as professionals, but also in delivery of high quality and safe patient care. So it's hard to invest time in something when you're not quite sure what the benefits are. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say it was hit and miss. So probably a good driver then in order to change from that kind of model into a clinical supervision model, what other drivers did you find was kind of the basis of that decision? Being allied health professionals, we're always striving for best practice and evidence-based practice. And we know that there are lots of benefits to clinical supervision. Um, and that's been well reported. So that was a key driver to changing to a clinical supervision program from the mentoring program that we had. Clinical supervision tends to be um, more holistic and more structured. So not only does it include that professional development and career progression, but also um, thinking about the reflective practice components to improve delivery of patient care and uh, competency in how you deliver patient care, whatever allied health profession you work in, mm-hmm. that it includes the normative functions of um, supervision, which is around your responsibilities within your role or within your profession and the planning and assignment of work tasks, the formative or educational aspects of supervision, thinking about integrating theory into practice, pulling out clinical reasoning and engaging in reflective practice. Mm-hmm. And um, as I mentioned before, the restorative or supportive aspects, thinking about the supervisee's professional wellbeing, uh, particularly in working in kind of high acuity care of chronically unwell people Mm -hmm. Um, and we experience a lot of vicarious trauma through what they experience. Mm -hmm. It's particularly important that we include that as part of our support of our supervisees. Yeah. And I think for even for me as a now senior dietitian who engages in clinical supervision, I really value the aspect of point of care supervision, which wasn't necessarily done in our mentoring program. When you graduate, you go from being a student to supervised for everything and Mm. everything is signed off and you've always got someone watching you and giving you feedback to help with your development. And for some reason, we don't tend to do that once we start working, unless you're in a department or a team that has a culture of point of care supervision. So I find even as a senior dietitian that it's valuable for me to have point of care supervision as part of my improving my practice as well. So that's a valuable part of the difference between mentoring and supervision. Yeah. And I think that's the thing as far as students are concerned, it's a big issue because student supervision, I, I see as being a much more of a point of care supervision, whereas clinical supervision may not necessarily be that same kind of thing. And I think that when, when you go from being a student to being unqualified, you do kind of feel like you've lost that. Uh, that supervision kind of aspect and some new, newly qualified people might just feel like, 
you know, they're a, bit, a little bit lost in those types of situations. I do want to touch a little bit more on, on that kind of issue um, a little bit later in the podcast. It does seem like a big task though to change from an informal mentoring program to a structured clinical supervision program. How did you guys go about it in your department? It is a big task, but we were fortunate in that in my role as allied health clinical educator, I had been working um, across the allied health professions to implement the Department of Health and Human Services clinical supervision framework for allied health of the children's. I was quite familiar with the framework and had been working through a consultation process with our allied health professions to use the framework to implement the guidelines and structures required to enable high quality clinical supervision within our organisation. Yeah. And part of that was undertaking the organisational self-assessment that's available, that sits alongside that framework to assess where the strength and strengths and the gaps were for clinical supervision within our organisation. So looking at local governance, the structures and the re- resources that would support clinical supervision. And from this, we were quite proud to have our or create our first local uh, RCH Allied Health Clinical Supervision Guideline for all 23 of our allied health therapies and, and sciences that we have at the Children's Hospital. Yeah. And from this, I switched from my role in as allied health educator to my role as dietitian, the clinical supervision portfolio within our department. So use this guideline as the building blocks for our local standard operating procedure within the dietetics department. The guideline was really helpful in creating a local procedure that was consistent with best practice. And also the framework was really helpful. We know that healthcare workers are transient. We know that they move from organisation to organisation. So if we can get some consistency across organisations, that will support the practice of clinical supervision because we're not creating different expectations for allied health at different organisations. Yeah, I was going to say as well, it probably was helpful for you that you came from another organisation where you had a well-established clinical supervision program. So integrating something like this in your own department, you kind of had a bit of a background knowledge and understood what was kind of going on and what was what was kind of needed based on what they already had established anyway. Yeah, that was helpful. But, you know, having said that, that was only my experience and one experience. So a key part to um, creating this local procedure and creating the guideline more globally was the stakeholder consultation. Mm. So that that kind of the in adopting the principles of co-design. So, you know, you get everyone's buy-in and experience and opinions uh, to create something that is valuable to the user and to create something that is likely to be adopted and sustained. Yeah. So it sounds like it was really good to get the support then from the right team members within your own department as well. Michaela, let's go to you. You're kind of acting a bit more of a supervisee in in a program such as this as well. Where does that kind of sit? Like what were your thoughts and feelings around changing from a mentoring to a clinical supervision program? Or for others, it may be that they've been, they have nothing in place and being asked to participate in the program for the first time. Yeah. Looking back, I'm not sure that I necessarily truly understood or even appreciated the differences between mentoring and, and clinical supervision until actually implementing the new framework into my sessions with Danny. I think the new concept was introduced to me relatively early into my professional career. So this meant that I wasn't really too far removed from perhaps the process of, of student supervision um, and could then really appreciate the, the value in a much more structured program. I was fortunate in the sense that I had had uh, previous mentoring experiences that were relatively positive but having said that, still found the framework to be really beneficial in my reflective practice. So driving me to think very critically about 
how I was going to progress my clinical competency, overcome, you know, challenges that I was facing in order to achieve my professional aspirations. And how did the transition go? Yeah, the transition itself uh, felt relatively seamless at the time. And I think um, this is probably attributed to, you know, the education that our department received and uh, having a very clear framework in place, which guided me as a supervisee, uh, but also uh, supervisors. I was fortunate enough to have an element of consistency and stability during this transition period. So uh, I actually retained what was already a really positive and well-established relationship uh, between myself and Danny. Uh, So this meant that our focus could be on the way in which we undertook supervision as opposed to having to think about perhaps, you know, fostering a new relationship alongside that. Yeah. Having said that though, more recently I have actually experienced a change in supervisors and, you know, certainly thinking back, it can certainly be, be beneficial to, to gain different perspectives from, from others. And I think for me, one of the most noticeable differences between mentoring and clinical supervision was formalizing the discussions that we were having through documentation. Um, so we had a, a supervision template that was developed for our department. And I think whilst on the one hand, this additional paperwork might be a bit of an adjustment, it it certainly uh, adds a lot of value to practice by uh, maintaining accountability for both parties, uh, but also tracking progress, which, you know, certainly from from my experience has led to more productive conversations and and just actions in general. I think perhaps there's this perception that, that supervision will solely focus on making improvements or, you know, addressing your weaknesses. But certainly this framework really encourages the acknowledgement of achievements as well, which is a very important aspect of the supervision process and perhaps not as apparent in previous models of supervision or mentoring even that I've participated in. Yeah, I I do agree with that as far as the acknowledgement thing. I think in supervision in general, whether it's a student level or, or at a more professional level, I think very rarely is a lot of it about celebrating achievements and actually looking at things that people are actually doing well. People like to focus a lot on things that they want to improve on. And if we ask them a question as to, you know, what do you think you're doing well? A lot of the time they're just like, actually, can we just go straight to the bit that I want to improve on? It's just like, no, well, let's start celebrating the stuff that you're actually doing well, because you really need a good pep up, I think, in that sense. Yeah, definitely. My perspective as the portfolio lead and, and as a supervisor, when we're thinking about how the transition went, change is never easy. Unlike a lot of the change that we experience in healthcare and in organisations where it's a process change and we follow these steps to do this process in this way previously and now we're going to change the steps to look like this, changing from mentoring to clinical supervision, we're actually asking for a shift in culture. And We know that culture is the sum of kind of attitudes, beliefs and behaviours, so that's actually a huge change within an department, within an organisation. But the things that really helped with that change within not only dietetics but I think within allied health at the children's was the top-down support from the director of allied health mm-hmm. who really saw the value in clinical supervision. Our dietetics manager was very on board and keen to get the clinical supervision program off the ground as with the senior dietitians within our department and the consultation that we did along the way with at all levels. So with our entry-level dietitians, with our mid-career dietitians, with our senior dietitians um, and our manager. And that having that organisation-wide guideline really gave us something solid to fall back on to say that this is best practice and this is what it looks like and so people could visualise what it might actually be going forward. That's all very well and good to have great support and to have a guideline, but really thinking about capability and competency in clinical supervision, you also need to think about how you train your staff in supervision. So we're 
uh, just working through the process of creating clinical supervision training uh, in-house that's relevant to our local context as a paediatric hospital and utilising those Department of Health modules that, um, that Marcus referred to in podcast one. Yeah, I was going to ask about how do you go about it when your staff are quite resistive to that kind of change? Because it is a big change in your department. I think a lot of the resistance comes out of the fear of the unknown. So again, having that guideline, having the training accessible, having a champion in your department that understands supervision, that can support the staff, can answer the questions, can role model what it might look like. And even the supervisees maybe having someone to go to like Michaela where they could because I guess they've got really limited experience in what it looks like and you only know what you know and you've had if you've had a really bad clinical supervision experience and that can happen for lots of different reasons then you lose trust in the in the process mm-hmm. so having you know supervisees within your department that have had positive experiences that can reflect on that and share that with the other supervisees in your department can be a, a help as well mm-hmm. You've got to the point now where you have your local procedure, which outlines expectations and process. And I assume before the supervision starts that partnerships need to be formed. So how does that happen? From the consultation we did with across all the allied health professions, it happens very differently in, in different departments and in, across organisations, it can be different as well. For us, we have just the structure of our department in terms of senior dietitians versus grade twos and grade ones. We have enough grade three dietitians that we can provide direct supervision to the grade twos and grade ones mm-hmm. without having to rely on the grade twos to provide supervision. They have a lot of responsibility in supervising the students who are coming through. So they're also developing their supervision skills that way. Yeah. In assigning those partnerships, we would usually consider what would work best in terms of clinical alignment and professional development for the supervisee. So checking in with the supervisee, what their learning goals might be and what their professional goals might be career-wise to be able to almost look at the jigsaw puzzle that we have, which is our department, and try and fit the pieces together that best suits the supervisees across the board. And then on top of that, we've, well, we've got quite a large department. Now we have a lot of fractional staff, so we have to think about the logistics, you know, simple things like do the two in the partnership work on the same days of the week and do they have enough crossover that if we're, they wanted to, the supervisor wanted to access that more informal supervision of you know, swinging around their desk chair and having a chat about something that's tricky, mm-hmm. um, they've got access to that. Danny and Michaela, you were both in a partnership as far as clinical supervision is concerned. Does this mean that you worked in the same clinical area? Danny is a specialist dietitian in our weight management service, which uh, supports young people who are above their healthiest weight. And at the time of our partnership, my role primarily involved the provision of of enteral nutrition support or tube feeding to children who were undergoing cancer treatment. So certainly our, our roles in the nutrition therapies that we were both providing were considerably different at the time. But I, I think the important thing to note is that the concept of clinical supervision is is not necessarily about attaining clinical answers for your supervisor. When Danny and I commenced our cl- clinical supervision partnership, we had a very transparent conversation about the expectations we both had of each other, which was clearly outlined in our supervision agreement. Yeah. So to give give a bit of an example of this, Danny set the expectation very early on that any problems I raised would need to be met with at least one potential solution or some sort of course of action that I had considered prior to our discussion. Yeah. 
which I think really encouraged more of a reflective practice driving me to to problem solve and and learn along the way. Having said that, at the same time, she certainly created a, a psychologically safe environment where I, as the supervisee, felt very comfortable sharing without, I suppose, feeling incorrect or incompetent in my role. Yeah. In summary, having clinical areas that were not aligned was never really an issue for us. And there's no doubt that experience in general, skills, you know, learning points from different roles are very much transferable. So I think our different backgrounds actually enabled us to really focus on the process of of clinical supervision and really work through things together. So there were actually times where having an external or or non-biased perspective from someone that was outside my immediate clinical specialty area had a very positive impact on my learning and development. Michaela, you've highlighted one of the really big misconceptions about clinical supervision, that you need to have that clinical alignment with working in the same area. Building that trust in the process through working through things, through me supporting your clinical reasoning and your reflective practice and knowing that I'm not going to have all the answers is really a really valuable skill to have or to, to work through professionally because there'll be times when the supervisor is not around and the supervisor will need to undertake that process themselves. So I think, I think this is the point that I was trying to, to get at before about the point of care supervision kind of role and stuff like that because it could just be a terminology problem I think um, more than anything else because I would consider normally a supervisor to be someone who works alongside another person directly supervises them at the point of care whereas in the context that we're talking about with with clinical supervision we're kind of removing that a little bit and basically saying this is not someone that you're necessarily looking at from a point of care perspective it's just someone that they've got to go to and I think that's where, where people may still get that confusion between mentoring and clinical supervision, I think, because that's typically what a mentoring kind of situation is. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how many iterations there are of people's impressions of mentoring versus clinical supervision. Certainly in our consultation process of creating our local RCH guideline, the, I found that the sciences tend to be more of that point of care competency-based yeah. mentality. Yeah. Whereas, coming from a science yeah. background, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Where and I think that was that was a real kind of light bulb moment to me to think about where we had to start in terms of the um, education around what clinical supervision looked like, mm-hmm. because being of, from a therapy background and one that has clinical supervision embedded more so than some of the other therapies, not quite up there with social work and psychology, but certainly more so than some of the other therapies. I didn't appreciate that difference in perspective of what point of care supervision or clinical supervision was. Yeah. And in terms of that point of care supervision and what we encourage within our department, it's not just me as a supervisor going to watch Michaela see a patient and to provide feedback on that interaction and to help her work through the treatment plan. We encourage co-consulting for patients. So supervisee and supervisor will go and see the patient together if they happen to work in the same clinical area. Yeah. But also the supervisee observing the supervisor run a patient consult because there's so much value in watching others practice. And, you know, we all eventually, how we treat patients and how we do our job is almost the little bits and pieces we take away from the people that we work with along the way. Yeah. So how do we establish then that open and productive supervisory relationship? You talked about how 
you're making the focus being clinical supervision rather than operational supervision, and I guess that's probably the more the better term to use in the point of care stuff. How else can we uh, establish that open and productive supervisory relationship? You're right. You know, separating that operational and and clinical supervision is really important, particularly in high stress environments where the operational aspects of our work are often the ones that we talk to talk about or talk to first, and we we lose time for the clinical supervision aspects. In clinical supervision, I guess everyone comes with their a prior experience in clinical supervision, whether it's no experience or really positive and strong experiences or perhaps not so strong experiences or challenging experiences with supervision. So in creating a new partnership, which is so critical to how productive a clinical supervision relationship is going to be, the absolute foundation of it, I would encourage people to come to that partnership with a glass half full attitude despite their past experiences if they've not been the most positive experience um, and sharing those experiences if they've not been so positive. So as a partnership, you can work on creating future positive experiences or more positive experiences in the future. Mm -hmm. In that partnership, thinking, as Michaela said, you know, considering your own experiences and internal biases and how they may influence the way that you interpret the way work together in that partnership and the things that you share within that partnership. Also being accountable to your roles and responsibilities within that partnership uh, is really critical to um, establishing the practice and the productivity of the relationship. And so Michaela, what did the clinical supervision look like in, in your relationship with Danny? Clinical supervision partnerships, thinking about both the the content and logistics of of how they operate will work really differently depending on the the people that are involved, you know, what kind of expectations they have and, you know, also their preferred way of learning what's going to work for me um, may not be the best approach for another. Certainly for us, there was very much this upfront agreement that I would initiate all of the meetings, uh, come prepared with some sort of informal agenda. So this would include uh, a bit of reflection on perhaps some of the challenges, learning points, or even just general wins that I had experienced since our last discussion. And from there, that would usually lead to a bit of a productive two-way conversation about uh, the points of actions going forward. So is this a kind of feedback, kind of thing like feedback where the person who's receiving the feedback should be the one initiating that feedback? Yeah, a little bit. Certainly that's how it it worked in our uh, relationship. It's not that we lumped all the logistics works, logistics of the practice onto Michaela that's consistent with the guideline that we have in our organisation in terms of the division of responsibility with supervisees leading the practice. That helps when you change partnerships because the supervisee has the same expectation no matter what partnership they're in. Yeah. The supervision partnership that that Danny and I had evolved quite naturally over time, um, you know, certainly our relationship de- deepened, but also, you know, I became a much more experienced clinician. So for us, there was over time less point of care supervision, uh, a lot more encouragement and support for some of those non-clinical activities. So, you know, thinking about quality projects and, and uh, extra roles within the department. Yeah. And a greater focus, I think, on career progression. So both in the, the clinical and the, the non-clinical domains. We had very formal and informal components of our partnership, so that was certainly something that worked very well for us. 
And I think for clinical supervision to be sustainable, there needs to be some element of flexibility in practice. So, you know, it might be during the the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, we switched to an online or, or virtual supervision model of practice. And f- from my perspective, uh, it was very important to have a supervisor who was really approachable, adaptable and able to be able to provide more acute support. So, you know, some support outside of those uh, formalized or more scheduled supervision times if it was required. And then you got to look at things like workload as well, because workload might, like you might have some sort of meeting all set up, ready to go. And then all of a sudden your workload completely changes because you've got other priorities that kind of need to kind of come into there. So then you're going to have to be flexible that way too. Yeah, that's certainly um, something that we experienced working in, in this sort of acute hospital setting. Yeah. I think that lends to the kind of cultural shift that we were hoping to achieve in that, yes, other priorities pop up and sometimes you have to reschedule your clinical supervision, but also giving our supervisees permission to schedule in regular meetings and keep those regular meetings as a part of their essential practice. Um, because that's a priority too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, yes, you know, in the short term, you may get to do one less thing in your day because you've done clinical practice, but the mid to long-term benefits to that are huge. So really giving them permission to say this is essential and this is more important and I need to keep this meeting or today is not the day for this meeting, but I'm going to reschedule it to tomorrow and making sure that we continue to ha- catch up regularly. Yeah. And certainly that, that upfront um, agreement or supervision document that's discussed at the beginning of the partnership really supports that in that there's some sort of agreement around the expectations of, yes, if you need to reschedule, that's fine, but we're going to do it within a certain time frame so that it's still prioritised as part of practice. I think when we're talking about, you've asked Michaela what supervision looked like for her from a supervisor's perspective. Mm. I agree with everything she said, but for me as a dietitian who helps patients improve their eating habits. I'm not kind of well-versed in checking in with people around how they're going, but that uh, well-being aspect of clinical supervision gives me permission to do that and the training in it gives me support in how I might open those conversations, particularly through the pandemic over Zoom. Like it's not the, the ideal way I'd like to catch up with Michaela, but it's what we had. And to say... Things are really tricky at the moment. We're all being isolated away from each other because we have to work differently. How are you going with that? And to and also in terms of working in a pediatric environment, which carries a high emotional burden. At the time, Michaela was working in oncology services. Um, you know, how are you? How are you going with with that as well? Because we do carry a lot. Allied health professionals often troop on and just get on with things, but it's it's okay to to feel things as well and. Mm. Absolutely. As a supervisor, it's not my role to provide counselling. It's not my role to be the psychologist. It's my role to check in and to see how she's going. And when, when we identify that there are challenges, what um, services or what strategies are available to help reduce the, the burden on that her, her professional life has on her. Yeah. I do want to just touch on a point that, we, that was raised um, a little bit before about career progression. Can can you elaborate on how the use of clinical supervision can enable that? Yeah, I think for me, the process of clinical supervision certainly enabled me to better identify the things that I wanted from my professional career. So the framework itself 
and just the the process challenged me to reflect on the clinical and and non-clinical areas of my profession, um, pushing me to explore things that, you know, I was perhaps interested in, but also the ones that, that, that didn't interest me at all so that I could follow a career pathway in some sort of clinical specialty area that that was meaningful to me. At the time of our partnership, one of my goals was centered around obtaining a role of a higher classification. Mm -hmm. Uh, Danny provided quite a lot of support around establishing some learning goals that were really relevant uh, that would in turn help me demonstrate the skills and competency that was really needed in those positions and be competitive with any um, potential applications going forward. I think working with Michaela on that, it was crucial, those learning goals that she established uh, with my support. And it's tricky, especially at the time, Michaela was relatively new to practice, relatively new to our organisation. So while she had really good thought out learning goals, she didn't necessarily understand the opportunities within the organisation to be able to uh, address those learning goals or support those learning goals. So as a supervisor, I saw my role in making her aware of, of opportunities as they came up, but also creating networks and establishing relationships with other professionals within our organisation that might support her learning goals. And certainly the mock interviews and helping with job applications, especially given a lot of what she went through was internal interviews, which is the hardest type of interview, in my opinion, because yep. you're trying to sell yourself to people who already know you. I and agree. Michaela's not one to promote herself just in just generally, <laughs> let alone when she's in a kind of high stakes. For those situation. listening, she's just sitting here looking very shy right now. So, <laughs> Michaela, did you move up to the next classification? I did with a, a lot of help from Danny. So thank you. <laughs> well done. Yeah, you can always as well, just this, this is going to be a shameless plug here. You can always point him in the direction of another podcast, which is about job applications as well. Um, so now that you've had a bit of time to engage in the clinical supervision program, what has been the key benefits for you as the supervisee, Michaela? Access to the point of care supervision that's been quite discussed quite a bit today, but Specifically, um, thinking about you know the clinical observations as learning and development opportunities and not a competency assessment. Clinical supervision has also really encouraged me to step that little bit more outside of my comfort zone, so in both a, a clinical and professional sense. And I think Danny just touched on it as well. Um, certainly, the expansion of my professional network and some of the the connections that I've made with other healthcare professionals to help facilitate achieving my learning and professional goals has has been invaluable. Look, thanks to both of you for coming in today and uh, talking us through this. Uh, Danny, can you give us your top three tips for starting a clinical supervision program locally? I sure can, Steve. I would recommend that you don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel. There are so many great resources that are already available. We've touched on and Marcus touched on the DHHS clinical supervision framework and the organisational self-assessment that sits next to that. There's also a lot of guidelines and resources on the HETI website. In developing your local guideline, procedure, policy, whatever your organisation decides to go with, think about who are your allies and who are your key stakeholders. You want that top-down support. That's really critical to the process and also thinking about the principles of co-design to get that engagement across all levels and that shift in culture that this requires. Again, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, thinking about access to resources and training that will support 
improving capability in the delivery of high quality, sustainable clinical supervision to support patient safety and care. And, and Michaela, just can you just give us one tip for someone who is so someone who's about to begin the the journey of a supervisee from clinical supervision? Can you just give a tip to that person as to how they can go about it? I think going open minded. So obviously people have come with lots of different experiences, but if you enter into this practice really open to perhaps a new partnership or a new framework of model, um, there are some really beneficial things will come out of it for you as the supervisee. Fantastic. Thanks again to both of you for sharing your experience in the clinical supervision within your department. Although it sounds like a lot of work, it certainly sounds like it's much more worth it in the long run, that's for sure. Uh, And a reminder to those who are listening that you can access the Victorian Clinical Supervision Framework by going to vicalliedhealthsupervision.com.au. Thanks, Danny and Michaela, for speaking with us today. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.